This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, we're coming to you from Miami Beach instead of our usual location in St. Louis, because we have a special program, mostly recorded in Havana, Cuba. We'll discuss the historic changes on the island, but first, back to our St. Louis studios where Natalie Odinger has our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Honduras arrested five Syrians this week who were using stolen passports, and politicians in the U.S. reacted by speculating the men may have been on their way to the United States to stage a terrorist attack. The arrests come just days after a series of terrorist attacks in Paris that have the world on edge about jihadist terrorism. The arrest sparked renewed concern in the U.S. Congress about the porous U.S. border with Mexico, concerns that spilled out during a hearing in the U.S. House of Representatives. Elliot Engel, a Democratic representative from New York, cautioned against overreaction and the need to follow all border security measures. Do we need to ensure Sure, we're following these procedures to the letter? Absolutely. Do we need to enhance procedures? Absolutely. Can we abandon our values as a nation out of fear? Absolutely not. Some lawmakers, like Elliot, are cautioning the U.S. not to slip back into the philosophy of putting security measures ahead of constitutional rights. Honduran and Costa Rican authorities caution that there is no proof those caught with the stolen passports are terrorists and may simply be refugees fleeing the civil war in Syria. Cuban officials are blaming the U.S. for a growing migrant crisis in Central America. More than 2,000 Cuban refugees are now stranded along the Costa Rican border with Nicaragua. Nicaraguan authorities refuse to let the Cubans pass through their country on the way to the U.S. The U.S. grants all Cubans who come to the country by land immediate refugee status due to the belief that the Cubans are escaping communist repression. Tens of thousands of Cubans have sought various ways to get to the U.S. in the past two years, the highest statistic for such refugee immigration in more than 20 years. We'll have several in-depth interviews from Cuba later on this program. As the number of Cuban immigrants in the U.S. increases, a new study reveals the flow of Mexican immigrants isn't northward, it's southward back home to Mexico. A study released this week by the Pew Research Center shows more than a million unauthorized Mexican immigrants returned to Mexico during the past six years. Although hundreds of thousands of Mexicans also came to the U.S. illegally during that period, the Pew study says those figures did not balance out, and actually almost 150,000 more Mexicans left the U.S. than tried to enter illegally. Other studies show the number of Mexicans attempting illegally crossings has dropped to the lowest number in more than 45 years. Unauthorized Mexican immigration isn't the only concern for authorities in the U.S. It seems at Los Angeles International Airport, they're also on the lookout for illegal imports, especially Mexican tamales. Yes, tamales. This week, customs agents seized 450 illegal tamales from just one airline passenger from Mexico. It seems he had the tamales stashed in his luggage on his way to share his culinary delights with family in the U.S. 
And although he did declare he was carrying food products, meat products aren't allowed because they can carry diseases. Custom agents say they will remain vigilant to intercept other loads of hot tamales this season, as the dish is a favorite during the holidays. For Latin Pulse, I'm Natalie Ottinger. Thanks, Natalie. Our shout out this week goes to our listeners in Mexico. Our listening group in Mexico is our third largest all time, behind only our listeners in Brazil and the United States. So we say mil gracias to all of our listeners in Mexico and elsewhere around the globe. And now to our special program on Cuba, part of our year-long focus on that country. We're coming to you from Miami Beach this week because the internet in Cuba is monitored by the government, slow in speed, sometimes hard to find, and when it's connected, it's inconsistent and expensive. Despite the internet availability, the biggest news to report from Havana is it's booming with tourists. Hotels are overbooked, and although many restrictions exist on tourists from the United States, the Cuban government reports about a quarter of a million tourists from the U.S. visited during the first six months of this year. 75% of those tourists, though, have family on the island. For our trip, we tagged along with a cultural and educational exchange delegation headed by Bob Holden, the former governor of the state of Missouri. Holden is also now a faculty member at Webster University in St. Louis. Here are excerpts from our conversation recorded in Cuba, and of note, you may hear some of Havana's traffic in the background. We saw all this crush of tourists here, not just U.S. tourists. There were some U.S. tourists in the mix, and it's, it's not easy to be a U.S. Yeah. tourist in Cuba right now. We saw this mix, mostly European tourists, um, but tourists from Brazil, tourists from Mexico, tourists from a lot of different countries. Is that changing Cuba in a positive or a negative way? Are we losing Cuban identity with this crush of tourism? I, I don't think we're losing Cuban identity. I think what Americans are now seeing is where we have stayed away from Cuba, others have tried to take advantage of Cuba, and they've built a lot of business ties, they build a lot of tourist uh, uh, ties, they build a lot of educational ties, and honestly, at our expense. Uh, we were too slow to get into the market. We were too slow to get in the market, and we didn't know, well, we didn't know how to get in the market, even if we could get in the market. Uh, and uh, politics kept us out of the market. Politics kept us out of it, but I mean, it's uh, I mean, people are coming to Cuba in uh, in significant numbers, and not that many Americans in the process. Uh, and uh, we've we've got to not only help our businesses uh, build those relationships, but I go back that long term, I think the cultural relationships are so very very important, uh, both. I think uh, we have a kindred uh, spirit with Cuba historically, and I think if we could look at, say, really building those city-to-city relationships, those school-to-school relationships, those organization-to-organizational relationships, it will come back and pay for itself many times over on our end of the economic spectrum if we're willing to reach out there and say, we want to be a partner with you. One of the highlights of the trip of course, was a meeting uh, that we had at the American American Embassy, which, as everyone knows, is now a new embassy in our uh, cadre of embassies across the country. Governor, you've now heard from 
Cuban officials, you've heard from U.S. officials, and you've been on the island for a week. What are your thoughts about this opening? Um, is the U.S. going to be able to do more business with Cuba? The answer is yes. Uh, we've got to decide how much business we want to do and how quick that we want to do it. As we all know, the politics of Florida plays a big role in shaping the U United States policy towards Cuba. But I think the realizations there on the part of most Americans of both political parties that uh, it's time to figure out a way to build a relationship uh, with Cuba because our businesses uh, could uh, benefit from it, our culture could benefit from it, and we could rebuild a relationship that had been historically a good one over the last uh, centuries uh, and really move our country and, and the country of Cuba forward. Let's talk about the politics, the domestic U.S. politics, because that it's more than just an international issue, and, and it may be a unique issue in the fact that, that this international issue is uh, at the heart of a lot of U.S. politics. And as a, as a politician, as someone who teaches about politics now, I, I, I wonder how you feel that this issue might get wrapped up in the current presidential race in the U.S. Well, if you, you look at uh, the, the, many of the comments made by some of the uh, Republican candidates uh, for president, uh, they're, they're very adamant that uh, until uh, Cuba repays its debt to Americans and American interests and repays its debt to Cubans who were uh, removed from the island either by their own desire or the desire of the government, that there's not going to be any, uh, any meeting of the minds and a way to solve the problem. Uh, my own attitude is that happened in 1959, 60, and 61. Uh, it's time that we look beyond that and look at what's in the best interest of the United States, what's in the best interest of uh, U.S. agriculture, what's in the best interest of U.S. manufacturing, what's in the best interest of small business community in, in our country, uh, and uh, find ways to, to work with this country, because if we truly want to change the policies of the government of Cuba, then the best way to do that is to build those relationships so that they see that what we have to offer is more beneficial to them and their culture than what they have today. You sat through a session with, with uh, officials from the Cuban government who had parallel complaints, complaints about um, people who had done crimes, what they consider terrorist actions, um, who are in Miami. You heard that, that they feel that there is a, a need to balance what's happened with the embargo. Here there are billboards that say the embargo is, is uh, one of the worst crimes of the past century, certainly propaganda, but that's the attitude that the Cubans have and, and present. How do we get past that? Well, first of all, I think it's important uh, for Americans to understand and know that the Cubans may have a far different view of our relationship than we do. Uh, they may have a far different view of the atrocities that they perceive that we committed against them as we perceive that they committed against us. And so until we can sit down and basically uh, say, let's find some common grounds where we can work together, then I think it's going to be very difficult to find uh, the the ways to solve those and address those issues and come to some solution that is really beneficial to, to both. But I think that's possible to do. 
Now, will that happen before the 2016 elections? Well, I'm not so sure, depending on who the candidates are of both political parties uh, and the circumstances surrounding the world, because even though Cuba's not involved with what's happened in Europe and Paris and things like that, I know that most Americans are even more sensitive to some of these types of issues that have happened in the past, uh, then maybe uh, uh, it doesn't help us in solving the problem. But I, th- I think the Cuban officials that we've talked to, the citizens of, of Cuba particularly, are very desirous of finding some common ground with Americans because keep in mind until 1959-1960, Americans really supplied a, a significant proportion of the economy of Cuba, and many Cubans felt like that uh, their best partners outside of their own country sat 90 miles away in Florida and the rest of the United States. Uh, But I I think in the last 10 years, uh, we've seen a a significant shift in America's attitude about Cuba and its relationship with the United States. I think now is the time to seriously think about taking the next steps. President Obama has done that himself by uh, uh, coming to an agreement on opening the embassy to start the the dialogue and the discussion about the differences between our country and and Cuba in terms of human rights, in terms of how our economies work with each other, and in terms of how our relationship is going to change in the future. And so I really think that... uh, whether we're, con- we're able to continue to progress and make those differences uh, solvable or make those differences unsolvable is going to be determined by who the next president of the United States is. And whether that president is Democrat or that person is a Republican, we really won't know what their view is on Cuba and the Cuban relationship. Certainly, um, former Secretary of State Clinton um, would probably follow the Obama policies, and many Democrats would follow the Obama policies. But but if there's a Republican president, all things go out the window, do they not? That is true, but keep in mind that some of the, the uh, strongest supporters of changing our policy with uh, Cuba is the, the American business community, the major corporations, whether it be in manufacturing and automotive, whether it be in technology, uh, and also the ag interest. And both of those tend to lean more Republican than Democratic. And so after the election is over with, uh, it might be an opportunity, if a Republican is elected President of the United States, for those uh, uh, minds to sit down with the new president and say, now it's time to... Uh, address this issue and provide some leadership because quite candidly uh, our economy and the health of our companies and our corporations are adversely affected by what is going on today. We heard a lot of impatience though in some ways. Um, If we're going to do this, let's do this business now. And if we talk about waiting to the end of the political season in the U.S. and, and also then letting a new president get their feet a little bit before they move forward on Cuba, I mean, look how long President Obama took before he moved on Cuba. Are we saying that this is really a project that's three years down the line? Well, and that depends. I mean, Obama's trying to do as much as he can without congressional approval. 
because he knows that right now it would be very difficult to make changes in uh, uh, policy and actions that uh, require a congressional uh, 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 commitment. Uh, at, the, at the same time, he can only do so much uh, without Congress stepping up and uh, also being a partner in this process. And so I think most of the Cubans want to see something done because they see the momentum uh, now moving to, to address the issue. And with a new president, whoever it is, whether it be Democrat or Republican, uh, then you've always got that learning curve period after they're elected before they decide what they want to do. And, and uh, a new president is going to be more cautious than a person that's been in office for five to six years and in their second term and can't run for re-election again. So they see an opportunity now to try to do as much as, much as they can with the existing people that are in uh, positions in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much. Our guest today on Latin Pulse, Bob Holden, the former governor of the state of Missouri, join us here in Havana, Cuba. Thank you very much, Governor. Well, I'm delighted to be with you, and it's been a real eye-opening experience for me and, and the rest of the people in the delegation. We'll be hearing more from that extended conversation with Governor Holden later this year. Coming up, though, another conversation from Havana. Stay with us. This is Tom Scared for the Borgen Project. Each year, nearly two million children die from preventable diseases. Each day, 30,000 people die from hunger. 500 each hour are children. The Borgen Project is turning this around. We need your help. To learn more, go to borgenproject.org. That's B-O-R-G-E-N project.org. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Also during our trip to Cuba, we spoke to Chris Gutierrez. Gutierrez is the founder and president of the nonprofit economic and development organization called Smartport of Kansas City. And he was also part of the delegation headed by former Governor Holden to Cuba. We spoke to him in Havana, where again, you may hear the city's traffic in the background. My, my first impressions uh, were that the economy, or at least what we've seen, has progressed more than I expected. I think most of what we've seen has been tourist-oriented or, or specifically directed towards us, so we've seen a lot of things that were, have progressed a great deal. Um, I'm very interested in the logistics and transportation, so I, I was glad to hear about some of the developments. We haven't seen many of those, but, but I've been impressed so far. What is your thought about the message that you would like to bring back to the business community in Kansas City and, on a larger scale, the business community in the United States? I, I think when the embargo is lifted from the U.S. side, I think there's great opportunities in Cuba in all areas, all sectors. I think initially tourism and, and the infrastructure to, to support the greater number of tourists that will be coming to Cuba has to be in place because it's limited now. But I saw opportunities in um, solar power. I saw opportunities in, in real estate. I saw uh, opportunity in, in what I'm uh, most involved in, and that is supply chain and logistics and transportation. It seemed to be very limited on what we saw. Uh, for example, the, the rail infrastructure was very well supported by the Soviet Union. And now it's decayed quite a bit to where there's opportunities for American companies to come in to improve the rail infrastructure, bring parts and equipment and, and rail cars and engines into the, into Cuba as well. We've heard a lot on this trip 
about the work that they're doing on the port at Mariel. Um, obviously, the Brazilians are here. Um, what is your impression of that project? And, and I'd like to talk to you a bit, too, about competition. It, it appears from the Cubans I spoke to that they believe Mariel is going to be a significant deep water port that would benefit not only from the Panama Canal, but the potential canal in Nicaragua. Um, and being a, a trans-shipment uh, center for all of Latin America. I think there's a lot of competition already for that. Um, many of the countries in, uh, in, in Latin America, including Puerto Rico, have expanded their port facilities to benefit from the canal, as has the Gulf Coast and East Coast and the U.S. So uh, that, for one, I think the Brazilian investment is significant, that it's coming from a foreign country uh, with real uh, knowledge of the port infrastructure. And I think there's only one U.S. carrier, that, the shipping carrier, that's allowed to serve Cuba now. But I think that will open up significantly once the embargo is released. So we've talked about the Brazilians and their investment here. Um, we've talked about tourism, and we've seen a lot of tourism on this particular trip that has a partnership with Spain. Um, so we've seen investment from Europe, um, from other parts of Latin America here in Cuba. Is the United States too late to this particular investment party? You know, Rick, that's one thing I have noticed, that the investment from foreign companies and countries is present, but it still seems very limited, uh, almost a, a, a waiting for the U.S. Uh, companies to invest here, almost a desire for the U.S. companies to, to come in and, and take a leadership position. I would have expected to see a lot more European, even Canadian, other Latin American countries' investments, and I don't think we've seen to the level I expected. So I think there's still a lot more opportunity. Some would say that Cuba really started to open up 20 years ago, so um, that development has been relatively slow is what we're seeing now. Absolutely. The hotel we stayed in in Havana was built in 1994, and while it was a beautiful hotel, it was still, I wouldn't say, to, to the international standards of some hotels, but it was only one. I didn't see too many others. Um, I would expect it, or I thought I learned that there was so much tourism development for foreigners, exclusively for foreigners, and, I, and while we've seen some of it, I expected a great deal more. Let's, let's talk about that, the crush of tourism, and, and that's what we've really seen here in, the, in this month of November. Um, we're less than a year from from Obama's announcement um, that relations were going to change with Cuba. Um, in your opinion, has, has that really opened the door to more tourism in Cuba? I, I think just from the week we've been here, every stop we've made, another bus pulled up close by with Americans in it. Uh, if we not three or four or three five or four, buses. Exactly, and we saw a marathon here that seemed to have a tremendous amount of Americans that were here. Uh, all following the, the letter of the law and how they're allowed to be here. Uh, but I think they've, they've uh, expanded that, that version of the law to, to get here in, in great numbers. So, yeah, I've been overly impressed with how many Americans are here from older generation to younger generation experience, experiencing Cuba. Let's get regional and specific now. Are there some things that Missouri can bring to Cuba? What business can Missouri bring to Cuba? What business can Kansas City do in Cuba? Yes, uh, Kansas City Smartport represents the metropolitan area of Kansas City, so both Kansas and Missouri. Uh, just in the agricultural sector, 
Kansas beef, Kansas wheat, I think would have opportunities here on the Missouri as well. You've got a tremendous uh, agricultural commodities business in, in Missouri that would have opportunities here. Um, everybody knows the stories of the vintage cars. There's a tremendous opportunity for the automotive sector, which, uh, again, Kansas City is a significant manufacturer, but also parts and spare parts in Kansas City. Um, and I think the logistics market, whether you're a third-party logistics warehouse or just a supply chain expert, you can have opportunities here to help companies understand how to bring products in or raw materials out, vice versa, in a, in a total supply chain. We've heard the Cubans talk a lot about wanting to maintain identity, even as the U.S. becomes more involved again, and um, certainly some ideas about um, the fact that even though Cuba was independent before the revolution, that it was seen as somewhat of a U.S. colony. Um, you brought up the issue of, of vintage cars. There, there's certainly an homage every day of this number of cars that go down the road. Um, but now it almost seems like those older U.S. cars are Cuban in, in their own way. Uh, you don't see those cars on U.S. highways anymore. No. And so for Cuba to maintain its identity and keep those cars running, it, it's going to need some help from Kansas City? Absolutely. I would think, one, it is absolutely part of the tourism of Cuba. It, it, those vintage convertibles we've seen, they will stay and be part of the uniqueness of, of Cuba. Uh, the older ones that clearly need uh, work and parts, uh, I think, could still be uh, a benefit from Kansas City in the automotive sector. Um, but you also are going to see a lot of exporting of those cars back to the U.S. for those collectors that want some of them and your, the automotive companies that will want to sell new cars here. So you're going to have somewhat of a mix, but you've got to protect the Cuban identity, I think. Help me with this about the issue of the cars. Before coming, uh, all of us have our own expectations as people from the United States about what to see. And certainly um, there seems to be a, a thread of commentary online that, that talks about that the Cuban cars are overblown. What's your impression after being here? Oh, I, I would say it's not overblown at all. They are everywhere. Even from the rural parts of, of, of Cuba we've been uh, on the bus, you see the vintage cars. I think they are here and they are present. But also the Russian Latas are here as an alternative to the Americans. Uh, but they're dated now and in need of work. And, and the, I think the, the work ethic, so to speak, of the Cubans to keep them running and, and keep them repaired with limited parts, limited opportunity to get uh, true replacement parts is, is amazing that they're continuing to run. Uh, some uh, are, are ready to retire, but I think a majority of the ones we've seen are operating very well. This is only just opening the door, this trip, your first trip to Cuba. Um, do you anticipate coming back? Absolutely. I've uh, already spoken to a number of people in the group that I, I would love to be back here, both from my own personal uh, interest, uh, I had a grandfather that emigrated here from Spain, and I think a business opportunity to understand more the Cuban people, uh, the culture, uh, and the expectations they have of, as you said, keeping the Cuban identity as the embargo is lifted, but being a strategic partner to them to allow their economy to grow. We've talked about transportation, we've talked about the tourism sector, what other parts of the economy do you think are important for us to discuss? We've learned that there's not a significant manufacturing uh, industry here, and most countries that try to come from a, a developing state need to have some manufacturing. There is in the biotech and in the medicines, 
but I think there's some industrial light manufacturing that could come in, parts uh, for the vehicles and other things, uh, light assembly uh, in that regard. But I think there's also opportunity in telecommunications, uh, computers. Um, you've got uh, all sectors, I think, have an opportunity. It's going to be who has the, the introductions or the relationships to come early. I, I think it's, it's very clear the embargo did not work in, in what its intent was originally. Uh, I think we should have opened the embargo or open trade with Cuba a long time ago. Thanks so much, Chris Gutierrez, the president and founder of the nonprofit economic development organization Smartport of Kansas City. We're talking to him in Havana, Cuba on Latin Pulse. Thanks again. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on Latin Pulse this week for our special, mostly recorded in Cuba. And now a programming note, Latin Pulse won't be online next week due to the Thanksgiving holiday in the U.S. We'll be back online Friday, December 4th. Special thanks this week to People to People International for arranging travel logistics in Cuba. Also, some of the travel support that made this program possible was provided by the School of Communications at Webster University. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. If you're looking for earlier editions of Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Flipboard. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org and then slash Latin dash pulse. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin dash pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse from Miami Beach. For our entire team, associate producer Natalie Oninger and technical director Jim Singer, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchen nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2015 Las Rocas Productions. Mm -hmm.